You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. Mark 5, verse 21 to 43. The title is, Jesus raises a dead girl and heals a sick woman. When Jesus had again crossed over by boats to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him whilst he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal, and under the care of many doctors, had spent all she had, yet instead of getting getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized the power had, been, had gone out from him. He turned round in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see, the people crowded against you, his disciple answered. And yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why is all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talita, kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this time, at this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them, told her, told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much. And good afternoon, everyone. Uh, let me add my welcome to Ralph's and congratulations for surviving the heat and the thunderstorm. And if you've come to church this afternoon to kind of doze quietly in the, uh, in the hot weather. Just be assured, I can see you. So uh, let that be uh, <laughs> an encouragement or a caution on that one. Uh, so as, as Ralph said, three weeks vision and impact. If you're new to City Church, perfect weeks to come because you get to hear a little bit about what the vision of the church is uh, coming up in the year ahead. Uh, so we're taking a break from the Acts series um, and, and have, uh, a number of sermons to kind of help us as a church think about where we're going 
So why don't I pray before we dive into Mark chapter 5. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are a God who speaks to us, that you are the one who leads uh, this church and you have plans for it. And I ask that you would raise our vision away from perhaps the details and distractions of our own lives so that we might hear your voice clearly calling to us this afternoon. We thank you that we have every confidence as your word is opened. Uh, You will be with us, challenging us, encouraging us, calling us to live the life that you would have us live. Amen. Well, let me begin by asking you this question. Are you spiritually stuck? Are you spiritually stuck? I say that from the perspective of the example, that the the way that you became a Christian, the way that you became a believer, is, is often considered a golden age for every one of us personally, wherever that might be. Or it's a period, if you think about it, a golden age of your spiritual life is a time or a church experience where your faith really grew. It kind of skyrocketed. Well, there's something wonderful about that, isn't there? Lots that we can celebrate. But the issue with a golden age spiritually, a moment that we can look back on and go, yes, that was the moment. Everything changed for me is that it can often be the time which kind of sets our Christian preferences in terms of the music that we like to listen to or the style of preaching that we like to hear or even the type of community that we like to belong towards. In our golden age of spiritual growth, that's often the time those preferences set like concrete. Meaning this, if the golden age of your spiritual growth was, perhaps it was during an in-depth Bible study, well then you're most likely going to look for an in-depth Bible study to be the the key solution next time you go through a period of spiritual dryness. Or if you... Um, if you perhaps, like many here, have come from a closed country to Christianity and perhaps you encountered Jesus in a dream, then perhaps your solution to a season of spiritual dryness is likely to be, where is that, where is that next big dream of revelation that I need? If your great time of spiritual growth was in a church which had extensive musical worship, well, and that was significant to you, well, then perhaps for you, you're thinking to yourself, well, let's do more of that because that's how God is guaranteed to show up. If your great time, your golden age of spiritual growth was through being part of a very tight community experience, perhaps in your past, when you were showed radical love by those in that group, and that's how you experienced the wonder of the gospel, well then for you, you may well be thinking, look, let's find a community like that again, because that's where we'll find the Lord. And of course, all of this makes perfect sense, doesn't it? But the problem is, throughout the Bible, we see that God 
will not be politely boxed. He will not be predictably controlled. As the writer C.S. Lewis uh, said, I'm going to paraphrase this very famous passage in the Chronicles of Narnia when he describes Aslan, the great lion. Lewis describes him as he is good, but he is not safe. And I love that description of what God is like. He is good, but he is not safe. And we've got these three weeks together as a church community where we're launching the plans for the church over the coming year ahead. And they are wondrously ambitious goals for the gospel. So much so that we cannot possibly hope to achieve them in our own strength. We are absolutely counting on the God of the Bible being good, but not safe, not tame, not passive. But this vision that you're going to hear over these next three weeks really requires you, and I'm talking to all of you in this room or even watching online, it requires all of us to be willing to step out of our comfort zone by faith. Because it's so important that you also know that God is bigger than your preferences, wilder than your personal experience of him and more extravagantly generous to our city than you could ever, ever imagine. Which is why I want to introduce you this afternoon to two people who had small, concrete, fixed view of God And I want you to see what happens when they actually met the God of Scripture. I've got three points, and the first one's this. Two common mistakes. Two common mistakes. Look with me at verse 22. It introduces us to a man called Jairus. Now, he's the leader of the synagogue, and that means he is spiritually and socially respectable. He's the type of city churcher who would love to go along to equip. They're just hungry to get fed by the word of God. Perhaps they're the influential connect leader or the respected ministry team leader. But of course, crisis is no respecter of social status or spiritual maturity or church involvement. And Jairus is in a crisis. In verses 21 and 22, we see that he falls at the feet of Jesus because his little girl is dying. Now, some years ago when Reuben was was very little, he's uh, my son, he was unwell and we had to travel to Liverpool's children's hospital, Alderhey, fairly frequently. And one of the things for those of you who ever been there or worked there, you'll often notice that actually the sick children are normally quite relaxed. But it's if you look in the eyes of the parents, they're the ones who are holding the absolutely crushing burden of 101 hypotheticals of what the future might hold. And Jairus, 
whose little girl is very sick, has absolute clarity about how Jesus needs to work in this crisis. In fact, he gives Jesus in verse 23, look at verse 23, he gives Jesus a four-point plan of what Jesus exactly needs to do. Number one, I need you to come to my house. Number two, place your hands on my daughter. Number three, she gets healed. Number four, she lives. Have you noticed how, um, if you ever go to a local GP, they now ask you at the very start of your conversation with them, what do you think is wrong with you? Have you noticed that? And I think it's very nice that they give us the opportunity to reel off whatever nonsense we looked up on, uh, on Google the night before, before they actually give us a professional opinion of what's wrong. But in this passage where Jairus has got huge expectations of Jesus, what's Jairus' assumption of God? Well, he believes that Jesus is compassionate. He believes that Jesus has a bias for closeness to those who are in need. And he believes that Jesus is prepared for intimacy for those who trust him. That's what Jairus assumes. Oh, but there's one more thing. Jairus also assumes that Jesus can only operate at very short range. After all, for Jairus, Jesus has magic hands, but they're no 5G uh, technology. They have to be immediate with the person who's ill or, or it doesn't work. You see, Jairus has a very clear idea about how God will show up in his life. And for the moment in our passage, Jesus just lets him believe that he's right. And so off they dash, heading towards Jairus' house to get there before it's too late. The, The modern equivalent, if this was a TV show or a film, would be Jesus and Jairus at the back of an ambulance, blue lights flashing as they go through rush hour traffic, sirens wailing. When Jesus would suddenly bang on the side of the ambulance to say to the driver, you've got to pull over. Well, can you imagine the shock and the bewilderment as Jairus checks his watch as the ambulance pulls to a stop. Well, that's the shocker, isn't it, here in our passage. Jesus is plowing through the crowd. There's people pushing around him, and he is surrounded by a populace of people like a 42-inch flat-screen TV on Black Friday, and he turns around and says, look, somebody's touched me. Even the disciples who have seen so much of Jesus before this think that Jesus has gone mad. They say, look, you're in the middle of a crowd, Jesus. Of course people are touching you. But Jesus is right. Something very special, something unexpected has just happened. We're told that Jairus wasn't the only person who got up this morning with the intention of intercepting Jesus. We're told that a woman who should not have been there had slipped through the crowd unseen like a shadow and she had made a beeline for Jesus. Now the reason that she shouldn't have been there was because she had a medical illness that meant that she couldn't stop bleeding. 
And if the endurance of the excruciating pain of a permanent period wasn't enough, the rules of her culture specified that her bleeding made her unclean, and that meant that she couldn't enter a crowd, she couldn't enter a temple, not temporarily, but permanently. For this woman, it was 12 years, we're told. 12 years. She couldn't be a more bigger stark contrast to Jairus, could she? You see, this woman in our passage was one of life's inexplicable tragedies. She was a kind of living ghost. She's a little bit like a city churcher who has been coming for perhaps the last month or even the last year, but it doesn't really matter because they always dart off at the end of the service before anyone can speak to them. And if they were caught, well, it really doesn't matter because nobody remembers their name anyway. They're not a member, they don't go to connect, and they like it that way. They're a ghost in the shadows of City Church's edgy lighting. And they like it that way because in the shadows, there is no judgment, is there? And I guess some of you will know what I'm talking about, won't you? Yet the woman in this passage has just as clear and concrete set of expectations about Jesus as Jairus did. You see that? The plan is detailed in verse 28. Can you see? It's a four-point plan, just like Jairus approached Jesus from behind because he, she's confident he doesn't have eyes at the back of his head. Touch his cloak, just the edge. Be healed of an incurable disease. Rebuild life again. That's the plan. What's her assumption? Well, her assumption is that she, she, she believes that Jesus holds a power beyond anything this world has ever seen. She believes that Jesus is the Duracell battery equivalent that powered the creation of the entire universe, but she also believes that he is too important to care about ghosts or the forgotten or the abandoned. She knows he's powerful, but she has no confidence he wants anything to do with her. I wonder if that describes your assumption of Jesus today. Well, come with me to our, our second point, two extraordinary realizations. The first point was two common mistakes. Second point is two extraordinary realizations. So let me recap a little bit. We have an educated and respected religious person who thinks that Jesus is all about intimacy, but he believes that Jesus has very limited power. And then over here, we have a woman who is a social and religious outsider who thinks that Jesus is phenomenally powerful, but has no interest in intimacy. Well, I want you to come and see what happens starting in verse 32. We're told that the crowd part all around her and all eyes are staring. You see, this is the very worst case scenario literally unfolding around this woman because we're told that she literally was trembling with fear when Jesus calls her out. And actually that makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you believe that God has infinite power, 
but has no interest in any relational intimacy or closeness with his creations, then the God that you're talking about is most likely a monster, is most likely an absolute tyrant. And I wonder if that's how you see God. You see, if you do, it's not that you doubt that God exists, but you do believe that he helps with phenomenal power those whose perhaps their performances pleased him. But everyone else, they just get pushed to the margins, don't they? It's the people for that tyrant God who's all-powerful, who please him through life or obedience or whatever it is. They're the ones who get the job, the marriage, the children, the recognition, whilst you... Well, you get crushed. And if that's your perspective of God, then I want you to note down verse 34. Because Jesus says something absolutely extraordinary. He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. It's a public declaration before her entire community that at once makes her safe from the crowd around her. But do you see, Jesus also gives her the most precious gift that she has ever received. Do you see it? Before her whole community, with smiles and delight, God himself calls her daughter. In other words, he's saying to her, I see you. You matter to me. And spiritually, you are not far from me. In fact, you couldn't be closer. She came for his power, and yet she received his intimacy. Do you see that? Notice he calls her daughter. Now, it kind of feels that we should finish there, doesn't it, on this beautiful end to this story, but actually it's not over. Jesus receives a tap on the shoulder. Do you see on the passage? You see, whilst Jesus had been with this woman, news had reached them that Jairus' little girl had died. And you can imagine the servants stumbling over what to say to Jairus. Perhaps they they turn to her and say, look, I'm so sorry, but at at least she passed away quietly. Oh, we're so sorry for your loss, but at least she's not in any pain anymore. That's what people tend to say, don't they, when someone's grieving? But Jesus says that actually they should return to the house anyway. And he says, don't be afraid, just believe. And notice in this passage, which has been full of crowds and crowds and crowds of people, Jesus narrows it right down until just standing beside this small bed with a small, cold body lying on it is just Jesus and his crying and her crying parents. Now, look, there's tension here. You see, for Jairus, in this moment, Jesus is actually doing everything that Jairus expected Jesus to do. Jesus is doing everything that someone driven by intimacy would do. Jesus came to his house anyway. He came to the 
bed of his sick daughter anyway, and he drew close anyway. But this is what Jairus learns in the moment. Intimacy by itself is useless. A God who is just intimate but has no power is useless. And yet Jesus does something that Jairus has never seen before and could never have imagined. Can you see? He takes the child's hand and using a very local colloquial phrase, Talitha Kum, meaning something like little one, wake up. He says it as gentle, as gentle as an invitation to a five-year-old for a hot chocolate with marshmallows on top. Do, do you see that there's no drama, there's no shouting, there's no screaming? Jesus simply has the power to pull her up, out, through death, and back into life, as if he was raising a dozing toddler from an afternoon nap. That's power. And the little girl lives. You see, whereas the woman expected power alone, and yet she received intimacy that just blew her mind. Jairus expected intimacy, but witnessed an absolute power that also just blew his mind. And I guess we shouldn't be surprised, should we? For this is the God of the cross and the resurrection. The cross, where Jesus died, where he was exhibiting such desire for relationship with you, such intimacy with you, that he didn't want to go into eternity without you. So he laid down his life for you so that you could be permanently forgiven, permanently restored to relationship with him. And resurrection... The Jesus who on the third day had the power to rise himself from the dead because death does not have the power to hold him. You see, these two people, Jairus and the woman, had concrete set expectations of how Jesus would meet their needs in crisis and yet they received something way, way beyond anything they could have ever imagined. So here's the final point and the final question. What does that mean for us? And this is our final point, three. Two challenges for City Church. Two challenges for City Church. What does all this mean for us? Well, let me speak to those of you in this room or who are watching online who are like Jairus. Perhaps you identify with Jairus. You're convinced that Jesus is kind, but in your mind, Jesus' power is very limited. Because if that is you, then the invitation aspect to next year's vision that Ralph was talking about, that challenge to all of us, the whole church, to be courageous and um, invite someone into a gospel conversation or into an Alpha course or Christianity Explored or the Hope Explored course coming up or even to church on Sunday, if you're in a gyrus mindset, you're thinking, is Jesus is very kind, but he's not powerful enough to work in my friends, therefore I am totally not doing that. What's the point? 
Because you know that in our culture, someone to accept coming to a Christian event, well, that almost requires a miracle, doesn't it? Not even to mention the amount of divine supernatural power required for someone to come along and even become a Christian. In your mind, God doesn't really act in your life in those massive brushstroke ways, and so why bother? Perhaps that's for other people, just not for you. Well, look, if that is you, can I say that this passage should challenge that mindset? It should challenge you because your networks are not too far out of God's reach. Do you believe that? So let me ask you this. Who of your friends... Who of your friends have you already spiritually written off? Not a chance. They'll never come to church. They'll never come to Alpha. They'll never come to Christianity Explored. They're gone. They're too hard-hearted. They're too uninterested. They're too sorted for a Christian. Well, or let me put it like this. Who of your colleagues have you decided on their behalf, because you haven't actually talked to them, so you've decided on their behalf, that the power of God is too small, too small to reach them. Look, I'm not a massive uh, invited to church. I don't find that something naturally very easy to do. But look, when I have actually stepped out of my comfort zone to do that, I have always been remarkably surprised, either by having the courage to say it and for the relationship not to crumble, that's a kindness of the Lord, but actually, more often than not, actually people say yes. We had a painter and decorator doing some work at our house just a few weeks ago. I got into a conversation. I had that kind of throat swallow moment. Would I invite him to church? I just felt I should do it. So I did. And that Sunday he came. He sat amongst you on the chairs right here. Someone we'd only met that week. The Lord is far more powerful and far more generous to us than we could even ask or imagine. Could this be your season when you are prepared to make yourself available to be God's mouthpiece, daring to scatter invitations to those you work with or live with or your family or even scatter your prayers widely because God's power is not limited to just who's immediately around you? Are you prepared to courageously do that and just for fun be curious to see what the almighty God of the universe might do with that. I really hope so. Well, now let me speak to those of you who, who do believe in supernatural power. That is not an issue for you. You've seen healings. You've witnessed prophecies be fulfilled. You've even heard the testimonies of God doing the impossible in people's lives. But for you you're just not convinced that he has any deep affection for you. Perhaps you've read the biographies of those great men and women of the faith who walked with immense closeness to God, 
and you know it's never been you. You love to read about it, but it's never you. Perhaps you love to listen to podcasts on different tools that will help you deepen your faith and your enjoyment of God, taking you to a satisfying spiritual place of peace. But it doesn't matter how many episodes you listen to, it's never you. It's never you. Perhaps the idea of God being a father and you being his daughter or his son is actually the very reason God seems so angry and distant to you because of your own parent. Well, look, this passage challenges us not to settle for a dry, grey faith full of obedience, but absent of any heart's desire or affection because the cross teaches us this is exactly what Jesus offers the believer. This is exactly what Jesus offered this woman who had been an outsider for years. This passage challenges every single one of us to pursue intimacy with God in this coming season like never before. Pursue it in your daily times of Bible reading and prayer. Pursue it by joining a connect group and being known or going to one of the many socials that will happen over the course of the summer. Perhaps pursue it by radical generosity, by offering it or receiving it, or by carving out time to join one of the new discipleship groups that are going to be launched. Look, I can't promise the results because God is not tame. But we can pursue intimacy with confidence because we know from the cross that our God pursues us even to death itself. The most remarkable surprise of this passage is that both Jairus and the woman came with shriveled expectations of what God could do in their lives and they walked away with their minds expanded beyond anything they could have imagined. Perhaps it's time you got unstuck. Now, City Church, is the time to step out of your comfort zone and seek the Lord afresh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your lavish generosity. We thank you that you are the God of both intimacy and power. And I pray that would spur us to pursue you and spur us on to be generous with our invitations. Amen.